Welcome to Staff Picks, the podcast for movie nerds by movie nerds. As always, I'm Mario Lanza, and I am your host on our journey through the movies out there that just need a little more love. And our movie today is sort of an interesting choice because it's not an especially obscure movie. In fact, at one time, this was the sixth biggest movie of all time. I just looked that up. I'm very proud that I know that now. We are talking about the 1972 disaster movie, The Poseidon Adventure, which at one time was a huge, massive movie that everybody knew, everybody talked about. But because it's kind of older now, it's not one you hear people talk about that much. It's been remade. They've done spinoffs. I actually only saw it for the first time fairly recently. So, like, this movie even predates me. But I wanted to get into it just because I have a unique host with a unique background, and I'm dying to get into this. So, my guest today, he has been on the show before. If you listen to my very early episodes, he did Cloak and Dagger, which is one of my favorite 80s movies. And what was funny about that one is because this guy is so much younger than me. My host, his name is Ryan Weiss, and he is a... I have to ask his age. I know he's so much younger than me, but I was shocked he even knew what Cloak and Dagger was. I'm like, how do you know this random movie from the 80s? And then he's like, well, you should understand my favorite movie of all time is The Poseidon Adventure. I'm like, how the hell do you even know The Poseidon Adventure, let alone is it your favorite movie? So I wanted him to bring him back on the show because I'm dying to get into this. So welcome back to Staff Picks. He's a teacher from Texas, and he loves older movies, even though they're way older than him, and I don't get how this works. Welcome back to the show, Ryan Weiss. Hello, Mario. It's great to be here. But uh, I think my job title is online instructor now. <laughs> oh, yes. <laughs> All right, our online instructor from Texas. Now, I try not to date these podcasts. I don't tell people when we record them because I could release it later. But you should know we are recording this from the, the middle of the corona apocalypse, and we are all been quarantined and stuck at home. So thank you, Ryan, for uh, note- noting that. What better time to do a disaster movie? <laughs> yes. So for your listening pleasure, since you're home dealing with real-life disasters, we will do a heartening disaster movie for you. It's very heartening. So, Ryan, I kind of gave you an intro. First of all, tell me what year you were born, tell me how old you are, and tell me how the hell this is your favorite movie of all time. Okay, uh, I was born in 1996. Um, I'm 23. I think I met you when I was like 14, but uh, so I, I'm getting older. <laughs> uh, but yeah, I pretty much any old movie that I like, well, most old movies that I like, you can pretty much blame my parents for. Um, I was introduced to this movie when I was about, I don't know, like eight or nine years old by my dad, um, and just right away I was hooked. I loved the plot. I loved the cast, the music, the suspense, the overall message and theme of the movie. It's just – it's all so great and goofy and just really well done. Yeah, let's talk about that. Your dad specifically – I didn't really get into this on the last podcast. And just as a note to people, listen to that Cloak and Dagger episode. That's one of my best early episodes. But we didn't talk about your fact that your dad is like a famous video game journalist, right? Yeah, he's written several books about uh, old video games, old video game systems. He's about to do one about every single game for the NES that was ever made for the U.S. Um, he's got a YouTube channel called like Tales from Retro Gamer. Just look up his name, Brett Weiss. You'll find it. Um, he's going to be so 
glad I'm saying this in the first five minutes, but uh, yeah, so he, he's a big time dork, even way more dorkier than I am, but I'm still pretty dorky too. But yeah, we, we both love, love, love uh, the Poseidon adventure. Okay. And I think that really answers my question already, because if your dad is dorky too, and that of course, not an insult, I am the king of all oh, dorks. No, no, yeah. No. But if your dad is dorky and young for his age too, that explains why you would be raised watching dorky movies. Absolutely. Okay, and that is the same message I try to get across to my children as well. So, Brett Weiss, thank you. You've done a wonderful job with your son, Ryan. (laughs) There you go. So, when did you first see the Poseidon Adventure? Oh, gosh. I was was like eight or nine. I would have been about, I don't know, 2005, maybe. (laughs) God, that makes me feel old. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, way way back when, 2005. (laughs) Yeah, back in the olden times. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, like I said, I've known Ryan since he was like 14. We know each other through the Survivor community. He's one of these dorky young super fans. But he grew up and now you're a respected teacher. So I'm glad now as a adult you can look back and we can talk about this wonderful movie from 1972. Yeah. And the last time uh, that I was on this, I think you introduced me as a prospective teacher. So being on this podcast has made all my dreams come true. <laughs> yes. That's what we do. We make, we're make we like the Make-A-Wish Foundation. We make dreams come true on this show. Exactly, yes. <laughs> so, um, The Poseidon Adventure, I don't. I probably don't have to sum up this movie for people, but I will just for maybe my younger listeners. It is a basically the Titanic of its time. It's about a uh, luxury cruise ship that is met with disaster. It gets hit with a wave on New Year's Eve or New Year's Day, I guess. It collapses. It turns upside down, and it's all about the intrepid survivors trying to climb to their rescue before the water comes in and kills them. Do you, is that a fair way to sum up the movie? That's a great way to summarize it. Yeah. I will, I will say though, um, you know, anyone over 40 has probably heard of this movie, but anyone under 25, I mean, I've talked to some, like people tell me, what's your favorite movie? And I say the beside adventure. And I get a lot of blank stares from people my age, definitely my students, my students don't have a clue what's going on. Um, but, uh, yeah. So, a lot of a lot of younger people don't know about this movie. Yeah, and I again, I this isn't a movie I even saw until fairly recently and I will say I was born in 1974. This movie came out 2 years before I was born and so I didn't really see it growing up. In fact, you might like this. The only experience I had with this movie period is um when I was nine no seven 1981 my parents took me on a trip to LA for the first time from Seattle and we went to the Hollywood Wax Museum and they had a whole display in there for the Poseidon Adventure it was a whole setup an upside down ship people walking through fire to their rescue and I'm like what's that and my mom's like oh that's a scary movie about a boat don't see it <laughs> <laughs> yeah that is I, I uh I'm in a Facebook group with like some hardcore uh, Poseidon Adventure fans even more so than I am um, and I've, I've seen pictures of that museum I'm super super jealous I didn't realize that you got to go to that I did but I didn't take a single picture and I did not re- appreciate it at all because the next display over was Christopher Reeve as Superman and I like that way more that, that's fair that's fair <laughs> okay now I'm dying to know what is a hardcore Poseidon Adventure Facebook group like um well they know every line they like they organize screenings of it they have well and a lot of those guys in there, like they know each other pre Facebook, like back in like just like message board days. You you know all about that, I'm sure. <laughs> yes, yes. I will not elaborate, but yes. Yeah, uh, yeah. They're 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 pretty hardcore. Um, they've like met the like I've never met anyone from the cast or anything, but a whole bunch of them have. Uh, there's not a whole lot of people left from the cast that are still alive, but uh, yeah, they've 
they have all like been they've all known each other like since before I was born. So I feel feel like kind of a stranger in that group. But it's it's pretty impressive seeing like what all they know. That's because you're 50 years younger than all of them. Literally. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> do they all yell and call each other sis every five seconds? They do. Yeah. <laughs> So, yeah, again, this this movie's relatively new to me, and I watched it a couple years ago for the first time, and I'm like, oh, that was kind of a fun movie. And I, But I was so intrigued that Ryan loves this movie so much that I've been watching it since then several times, and it really kind of grows on you, I have to say. Absolutely. It's and just the message of just working together, the over-the-topness of it. I mean, it's just every single thing about this movie is amazing. <laughs> Now, that does lead me to a bigger question, and this is the, the million-dollar question, Mr. Weiss, teacher. <laughs> is this a good movie? Uh, hmm. Yes. <laughs> Barely, but yes. Yeah, it shows up on a lot of lists of, like, the most enjoyably bad movies ever made. Yeah. But it's not, like, bad in a, in like, uh, what's the right word? It's not bad in, like, an unwatchable way. Like, it's just kind of over the top. Like... To me, it straddles the line between great movie and goofy movie, and it's like Halloween kind of does that too, and I have so much love for Halloween. That would be how I would describe it. It's right there in the middle. Yeah. You know, I, w I would say it's objectively good just because the suspense is there, just you feel for the characters, you're right with them. I've seen quite a few disaster movies from that period, like Airport and Earthquake, and it's really hard – like The Swarm. It's really hard to connect with a lot of those characters, and so many of those movies are like – two two and a half hours long and just they're a slog to get through this is not like that at all like you're you're with them every step of the way um i think it's really good yeah and i think there's no disputing that this was a big movie for its time it's got a big cast there's a lot of big names in here uh there's a couple oscar nominations i believe shelly winters at one point mm -hmm. and then so it was considered a huge special effect showcase for its day so that's the one thing I'd get across to people that are younger. Like, this is really the Titanic of the early 70s. For That's how big it would have been at the time. Yeah, it had eight Oscar nominations. Like, this wasn't some, like, schlock film. Like, this this was a big deal. Yeah, and again, what I said at the start, I just read this today, that, that one time this was the sixth highest grossing movie of all time. Yeah, yeah, it was, it was a big deal. <laughs> how did I not see this until, like, 2006? I don't know. Guess your parents don't love you. <laughs> You know what finally convinced me to watch it, by the way, is they, they covered it on I Love the 70s. <laughs> and it was just celebrities riffing on it, which is near and dear to my heart, people riffing on stuff. How could you ever riff on this movie? There's nothing to riff about. Oh, child. Oh, oh, child. <laughs> it's going to be a long podcast. Yeah, this is going to be a fun podcast. <laughs> I am ready to riff this one because this is, like I said, right in the middle of awesome and goofy. Yeah. Um, before we get into the plot, do you want to go over the cast a little bit? Yeah, we'll go over the cast, but first, I think uh, I didn't actually know this. This is based on a book, correct? Yes, a very dark and depressing book. Now, why is it dark and depressing? Um, for one, uh, the kid, Robin, to your delight, uh, I would think, dies. They He gets lost, and they never found him. Um, wow. One of the characters gets uh, taken advantage of, and at the end of the movie, she's hoping – uh, she gets pregnant, so she so she can honor the guy that did that to her. Wow! <laughs> so lots lots of fun stuff in that book. It's great. Wow! I did. Is that is that Nani? No, it's uh Susan, the sister. Susan! Oh my God! Wow! Okay, this is horrible. It was probably a good omission for the movie. <laughs> did Stephen King write the book? Uh, you would think so. <laughs> okay, let's get into the cast. I will turn it over to you. Paint a picture of this amazing cast for people. Hey. 
Um, I don't remember who specifically, but I think there's like five Oscar winners in here. Um, I don't I don't remember who, but you know we have Gene Hackman, who's the star. He plays Reverend Scott. Um, he's one of the only people that's still alive. I think he's like 90 years old. He's still kicking. Um, he's a great actor. Uh, Ernest Borgnine's in that. He's great. You know, he's he's in a bunch of stuff. Obviously, his most famous role is a uh, Mermaid Man and SpongeBob. Uh, but <laughs> yeah, he peaked in SpongeBob. <laughs> yeah, but uh, he's great in Escape from New York and all that other stuff. Um, you have Stella Stevens who plays Linda Rogo, uh, Ernest Borgnine's wife. Um, I don't know. I think she's in like Nutty Professor. I haven't really seen her much and stuff, but she's great in it. Uh, my favorite, you have uh, Jack Albertson who plays uh, Manny Rosen. Um, he was also a Grandpa Joe in Willy Wonka, but he's not the uh, selfish, freeloading psycho that he is in that movie. So, um, But it's funny because beside him, you know, Willy Wonka was 71 and beside him at 72. So he looks exactly the same in this movie as he does in Willy Wonka. So it's, it's funny seeing him um, in this when you're so used to Willy Wonka. Yeah, I got plenty of Grandpa Joe, uh, Joe jokes coming later. You get ready. Yeah. He's quite the womanizer in a Poseidon adventure. <laughs> yes. All right. Yeah. So then Shelly Winters, we talked about um, Red Buttons is in this. Do you know the movie that Shelly Winters and Red Buttons were in together? I actually do because I want to do it on Staff Picks one day. Pete's Dragon. Yes. <laughs> one of my all-time favorite Disney movies. Love it. So I listen to that soundtrack all the time. Yeah, same here. I still love that movie to this day. Yeah. It's like severely underrated anyway um we have carol lindley who passed away a couple months ago she plays nani the musician or the singer um she's she's really cool uh roddy mcdowell who's famous for plenty of the apes movies he plays acres the the crew member in this and then you have the kids uh eric shia i think his name is he plays robin shelby and then pamela St. martin who plays his sister it's probably shay eric shay that'd be my guess oh yeah yeah, yeah. you're right you know whatever happened to him robin the annoying little kid um, he was a child actor for a while. He was in like an episode of the Brady Bunch where he was like Cindy's date. Uh, <laughs> yeah, not great. Um, but I think he stopped acting when he was around 17. I don't really know what happened to him after that. Okay. Well, best wishes to Eric Shea, even though we were going to savage the hell out of you on this podcast. Yes. Oh, and, uh, Leslie Nielsen, captain. <laughs> yes. Leslie Nielsen before he was a comedian. Yeah. And it's really weird. Like you would think that like when I see him, I would think of like Lieutenant Frank Drebin from naked gun or the doctor from airplane but he's actually like pretty convincing in the serious roles well yeah that's all he did for decades he was just mr straight man so like when he became airplane it was shocking to people right yeah because i know he got to start uh, with forbidden planet which is one of my dad's favorite movies <laughs> yes yeah leslie nielsen's always a trip to seeing this not being funny i'm waiting for him to like drop punchlines and look at the camera but he doesn't yeah oh by the way happy new year <laughs> yes happy I should point out, this was supposed to be our New Year's podcast, but I kind of dropped the ball, so it's not quite as timely as it should have been. But ultimately, it is pretty timely. Yes, with the coronavirus, yes, we've timed it perfectly. <laughs> okay, are you ready to walk through the sixth biggest movie of all time, The Poseidon Adventure, Ryan? I'm so ready. You better you better watch it, though. You better watch it. Why? Don't, get, don't, get, don't you riff on it too bad. I'm very sensitive. But, you know, riffing on it would be a cinch. <laughs> that is true, sis. That is true. <laughs> okay, here we go. I'm uh, expecting we're going to get a little low, uh, older audience on this one. You guys probably know the movie. So we will go through this, and no disrespect. I really do like this movie, but again, Halloween is one of my favorite movies of all time, and we riffed the hell out of that one. So we're probably going to do it on this one, too, cause, just because it's fun. Oh, absolutely. There's there's a lot of stuff to unpack here. Yes. Okay, so 
Again, this is the story of the SS Poseidon, which is a cruise ship, and I believe it's going from where? From New York to Greece? Yes, to Athens. Okay, and it's like its last voyage. It's like this ship that's been going on forever. And this is all fictional. They try to portray this as a true story, but it's all fiction. Uh, yeah, it says like in the opening text, like there were some survivors. It's like, spoiler. <laughs> yes. Okay, so here we go. And uh, yeah, it says like, this is their story. These are the survivors. Yeah. And we start yeah, with... We, we didn't need that. Yeah. We start with Leslie Nielsen, the serious captain. And like at the start of the movie, they're in the big storm in the middle of the Atlantic. And for some reason, this little kid, Robin, decides to run up and talk to the captain in the middle of the worst storm they've ever been in, which is a wonderful opening for a movie. And you were probably hoping that he got swept away overboard. I didn't hate Robin yet. Yeah. Yeah, because he hadn't opened his mouth yet. That's fair. <laughs> yeah. This little annoying know-it-all kid, Robin, who will be in every scene in this movie and is constantly, what is he like, the expert on ships? Apparently, yeah. He knows a lot <laughs> about this and the Andrea Dora that stayed up for 10 hours. <laughs> so apparently 12-year-old Robin was in the Royal Navy for eight years. <laughs> I don't know. He's, he knows everything about how ships are constructed, and they will constantly defer to him at all times during the most stressful point in their lives. So, true story, of course. Yes. <laughs> it's like a freaking Godzilla movie. Oh, <laughs> little Timmy, little Timmy will show us, how, show us how to defeat the giant lizard. He really does. He, he leads them more than uh, Gene Hackman does. He does. This is the Robin story. Yeah. <laughs> Why wasn't he... Uh... <laughs> Never mind. I won't, I won't spoil it yet. Yeah, don't spoil it. We haven't got to the jokes yet. So, so Leslie Nielsen's trying to captain a ship through the storm, and this little kid, Robin, runs up. Hey, I just wanted to talk to you. I just like this. I like boats. <laughs> Captain's like, why are you up here? Like, uh, this, uh, this seems especially goofy to start the movie. Yeah, it is. <laughs> And what's like the, the, the captain's like, well, there's no, these, these, these giant storm swells. And Robin's like, those are 30 foot waves. I know all about waves. I'm a wave expert. <laughs> <laughs> I don't really have anything else to say. It's just Robin spouting his typical Robin bullshit and the captain trying to get him to go away. <laughs> yeah. There'll be plenty of other Robinisms in the next like 95 minutes. And that's it. That's all this scene is. Robin's annoying and the captain steers the ship and they're in bad weather. And that has nothing to do with the rest of the movie. But OK, now we go meet all of our characters. Mm -hmm. Now, the captain does say that the ship is very top heavy. And uh, we'll see later on that some of the characters are pretty uh, top heavy, too. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Including Robin with his giant head. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> OK, so let's I'll let you introduce all the characters. We're going to go. There's only like eight or nine main characters in this movie. And we meet them all here in a little montage. Kind of introduce uh, Mr. and Mrs. Rogo for us. Uh, the Rogos are amazing because they spend the whole movie yelling at each other. Um, it's five minutes from the movie and, you know, you already have 10 characters yelling at each other. But uh, the Rogos definitely are the experts at that. Um Miss uh, Miss Rogo, uh, Linda Rogo, she's sick, and she needs to be given a suppository. And uh, Mr. Rogo does not know what a suppository is, <laughs> and so the nurse has to explain to him, "You don't uh, swallow them, sir. You have to." And she makes like an upward motion with her hand. <laughs> it's so great. It's so great. Yeah. So their backstory is Mr. Rogo is a cop. This is Ernest Borgnine playing the sweaty Ernest Borgnine character who yells a lot. And his wife is a former prostitute that he used to arrest and now he's fallen in love with and he's married her. So they make an odd couple. Yeah, it happens. And she will spend most of the movie in various states of undress if you're into that. 
Uh, a lot of fans certainly are. Okay, uh, we also have uh, James Martin. He is a haberdasher. He's super uptight, and he wants to help people at every possible moment. Um, he also seems kind of lonely. You have the Rosens, the older couple. Wait, 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 wait. Let's skip over Mr. Martin here. Mr. Okay. Martin, that's Red Buttons, the lonely bachelor. He's the sad older man, but he's very kind and sensitive. Yes. And when we first meet him, he's speed walking. That's what he do. That's what he does. He runs, so people don't notice. They call that running. That is not running. I have seen running. I lived through the '80s. That's called speed walking. Yeah. Oh, fun fact. Before we continue, um, this was filmed. The the like the deck scenes they were filmed on the Queen Mary, um, and so in 2015, it's the Queen Mary is still there in uh, Long Beach. And in 2015, I went there with my mom and my sister, and uh, I did do some speed walking around the deck of the ship because once you buy a ticket, you can just kind of walk wherever you want. <laughs> And those <laughs> that area where uh, Mr. Martin is doing his little run is still very. It looks exactly the same. Still, still very accessible. So I, I had to do my uh, speed walking with my peace sign to the Rosens. <laughs> my my some of my favorite moments on staff picks are when I get a co-host who's as dorky as I am. <laughs> that you had to recreate the speed walking scene. So I really appreciate that. Thank you. Well, I do it so people don't notice. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so then we have the Rosens. Now explain who the Rosens are. Um, they are an older Jewish couple. One is Grandpa Joe and one is Shelley Winters. Um, Shelley Winters had quite a reputation in Hollywood. Um, I don't think anyone liked working with her because I heard she was pretty intense. But uh, they are an older Jewish couple heading to Israel, I guess, to meet their grandson. Um, and they're super. Wait, you caught that they're Jewish? It's very subtle. The 18 Jewish references in the first minute. <laughs> And the, the, the Hebrew she speaks right after it capsizes. Yes. So they're going to visit their grandson for the first time. Yes. And uh, and they're gossiping about Mr. Martin, how lonely he is. Now, did you hear the trivia about these two actors, uh, Jack Albertson and Shelley Winters? I'm not sure if I have. Did they hate each other? Jack Albertson hated her guts. He's like, <laughs> yeah. the greatest day of my life was when she dies in that movie. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, that's I've I've heard that a lot about Shelley Winters. It's kind of sad. <laughs> now, here's the first thing I noticed about the scene. So you said this was filmed the same year or the year after Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory. Yes. And in that movie, he plays Grandpa Joe, who lays on the bed the entire movie basically until this until he finally gets free chocolate. Right. In this movie, the first shot we see of Jack Albertson, he's laying on a deck chair. And he's laying the exact same way he is in the in Willy Wonka too. Yeah, I'm like, does that motherfucker ever stand up? <laughs> so, anyway, we'll see more of Grandpa Joe later. He will eventually get up. He doesn't do any dances in this, but he does jump into water. It's an action scene. Yeah. Yeah, Mrs. Rosen definitely wore the pants in that relationship. <laughs> yes, and Shelley Winters, kind of a notorious, iconic actress, kind of a sex symbol, kind of a – I don't know. She was very dramatic and, and very notorious when she was younger, but she gained a lot of weight for this movie. She's kind of in middle age here, and she's playing someone much older than in real life, and so there will be lots of references in the script to how fat she is. But, again, that's her character. But in real life, Shelley Winters said she gained weight for this movie, and she was never able to lose it afterwards, and she wasn't happy about it. Right. Yeah, so, and I don't think she was in a ton of stuff after this either. Just Pete's Dragon, I think. Yeah. <laughs> the iconic Ma Gogan, one of my favorites. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and she, she looks so good in that movie. She she looks so glamorous in that. <laughs> yes. They had her the gain and wait for this, and then in Pete's Dragon, it's just this, plus they ugly her up and knock her teeth out. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> 
All right, so there we have the old Jewish couple, Grandpa Joe, and we have Mrs. Rosen. And then uh, who else do we have? We have the preacher, right? Yes, Reverend Scott, who calls other preachers garbage. <laughs> and I didn't catch this um, until today. Um, so he's he's a preacher. He's a reverend. Um, but the reason he's on the ship is because he got banished by his church to go to some random country in Africa to like to preach over there. I, I for some I've watched this movie a hundred times. This today was the first day I actually caught that. He's a renegade. Yeah, he he doesn't follow the rules. He's unorthodox because he preaches not to uh, ask God for help, but to help yourself. That God can't help you. You have to find the part of yourself within God or the part of God within you. And the church does not like that, so they have banished him to Africa. Yeah, and I I do got to say um, his mantra that he has like growing up like I was obsessed with that. Because growing up, I mean, I, I went to church growing up and everything, um, and I was, I was really religious. But uh, like hearing, like, you have to fight for what's right. Don't just pray. Actually work towards that. And that was actually something that really spoke to me growing up. I don't know how serious you were supposed to take it or if even you were even supposed to side with him as a viewer. But um, I don't know. It's a, it's, it's a good, it's a good uh, mantra, I think. No, I agree with you. I actually do think there, there are some powerful things in this movie, and a lot of Gene Hackman's speeches work. But, again, it's because he's such a good actor. He really sells this stuff. Oh, yeah. For sure. I have to say this. I will give my dork cred here since you did, gave me the speed walking story is that one of my favorite movies is the quick and the dead where Gene Hackman hates uh, Russell Crowe because he's a preacher and the whole movie's like preacher. I hate you preacher. So it's really funny that he is called preacher in this one. That, I, 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 that amuses me. That's another movie. I listen to the soundtrack a lot for, by the way, that is fantastic. I love that. Soundtrack is amazing. I listen to it when I'm mowing the lawn. <laughs> That's the old western theme is perfect for the mowing of the lawn in texas yes it is <laughs> so that's two of my former staff picks episodes you guys should listen to ryan on uh cloak and dagger and my quick and the dead one which is the one of the greatest movies i've done so far and no one ever talks about that one yeah i, I also listen to that podcast while mowing the lawn <laughs> the podcast and the soundtrack <laughs> yes i mow a lot of lawns wow you have the best lawn in texas i'd imagine <laughs> acre and a half it's my grandma's <laughs> Okay, so let's introduce the rest of the characters. Go for let's see, we got Nani. Yeah, go through the rest of the characters here. Okay, so we have Nani played by uh, Carol Lindley, and she's in the ballroom practicing the infamous uh, "There's Got to Be a Morning After," or as the credits call it, the song from the Poseidon Adventure. <laughs> <laughs> they were really trying to promote that one. That's the name of the song. Yes, <laughs> like even even on like the 45, it doesn't say "Morning After." It says the song from the Poseidon Adventure. You know, if you look through the IMDb credits, Gene Hackman is listed as the actor from the Poseidon Adventure. Yeah, right. <laughs> but yeah, um, she's doing a good job. She's lip syncing that. Uh, the the um, the famous Morning After was sung by uh, Maureen McGovern, I think that, that's her name. Uh, but then you you have the movie version, the woman who's singing that. Her name is Renee Armand. Uh, so yeah, you have all these different people singing it, none of whom are Carol Lindley. But regardless. It's an amazing song. That's either one of those, you either love it or you hate it. These days, most people seem to hate it. Um, I think it was like made fun of on South Park and The Simpsons and all those, but yeah, anyway. Now, if you could describe Nani in one word, what would it be? The singer of the band who is going to be part of the Survivors later. How would you describe her? Um... All right, moving on. <laughs> I think the word you're looking for is useless. Right. <laughs> <laughs> The whole movie, she will simper and whine that she can't do this, and other people will drag her along. So that's Nani's future here. She can't even swim. <laughs> no. So who else we got? You got Nani, and then uh, who else? 
You have uh, Akers, who is uh, seems to be pretty attracted to Nani, although you'll never see them talk for the rest of the movie. <laughs> Akers is for people who don't know the movie. He is a like a bus boy played by Roddy McDowell, and he's not long for this movie. And he has is it a Scottish accent? I think. I think so. Yeah. And it comes and goes because Roddy McDowell could not do the accent. <laughs> I read that in the trivia. He could not do the accent, so it it, it disappears partway through the movie. Yeah. But yeah, he, he's in there in the ballroom, like getting ready for it. And the waiter next to him is bashing the music. Great to bash the music that you're trying to promote for this movie. <laughs> How dare he talk smack about the song from the Poseidon Adventure. Yes, right. <laughs> yeah, then we have our last two characters, uh, Robin and Susan Shelby. And they're arguing right away because uh, they're there without their parents. Their parents are, <laughs> I guess, waiting for them. Or, I don't know how that works in that family dynamic. But they're out waiting for them at their destination. Um, they're getting ready for church that Reverend Scott's going to preach at, and Robin's arguing with his sister because he doesn't want to go on church on his vacation, which is fair. Um, and then he tells his sister to shove it, so, shove it, shove it, shove it, which is probably his best scene in the movie, i got to say. <laughs> his one win. It's all losses after that. Yeah, that yeah. No, Robin, this is the – for to sum it up, he's the kid we had earlier in the movie that stormed the uh, captain's room to talk during the storm. This is Robin and his older sister, Susan, who's about – 15, 16, how old is she? Uh, probably 16, 17, something like that. I don't know. I think I think in the book she might be 17. And for some reason they are on a luxury cruise liner by themselves. My parents would not have done that for me when I was a kid. Yeah, I don't I don't think I was allowed to go across town by myself. <laughs> <I know. laughs> the parents are waiting for them in Greece here take this cruise with your older sister. And that's the thing. It's like you can't feel too bad for all these people dying because, like, you know they're all rich and snobby. <laughs> now, wait a minute. Are you forming judgments on the the the, the Shelby family, Ryan? <laughs> hey, we live in a socialist uh, society right now. <laughs> wait a minute. Wait, wait, wait. We're not quite to the socialist society. We're getting there. But all right. are you to by the tell... time this is released, maybe. Yeah, by the time this is released, we may be a full socialist country. But are you implying that the Rogos are rich, the former cop and the hooker? I mean, I've heard hookers make some dough, so I don't know. It depends on what side of town she was on. Have you seen Mrs. Rogo? She wasn't pulling in that much money. I mean, there was a guy that she did see that looked pretty damn familiar. <laughs> Maybe in sheer volume she was pulling in the money. <laughs> right. Yeah. So these are our intrepid survivors that will be surviving. Did we forget anybody? I think we got all of them. Yeah, I don't, I don't think we did. Um, one of my favorite things, like, as we meet them, nearly every single scene, besides the the slow or the fast fast walking scene, um, you have characters just screaming at each other. <laughs> you have the preacher screaming, you have the kids screaming, you have the rogue. Like this whole movie is just people just screaming at each other, and it's amazing. I noticed that when I was watching it the other night, my wife was like, "Why is Ernest Borgnine just yelling?" He's just he's talking to his wife, but his volume is way too loud. Like he's just doing Ernest Borgnine things the whole movie. Yeah, it's great. <laughs> Thank you. That's a good observation. I I forgot. Yeah, Gene Hackman's yelling. The kid is yelling. Oh my God, they're all yelling. Although we do learn an important piece of information from Robin the boy. Do you remember what he's learned? It will come in handy later in the movie. Uh, I do not. Remember, he has a friend, the third engineer. And oh, the yeah, third... Charlie, the third engineer. Yeah, so apparently Robin has made friends with the mysterious Charlie, who we never meet. And Charlie has given him a tour of the engine room. And what did they learn down in the engine room earlier? Uh, 
that the hull is only one inch thick? Yes. The hull of the boat is only one inch thick because that is a common fact that people will repeat to children on cruise ships. This is where we're going to climb out of the boat later. So make sure you know the exact width of that steel. Do we ever see Charlie the third engineer? No, Charlie dies off camera very painfully. By Chris Hansen, probably. <laughs> yes, yes. Disemboweled by a falling table. It's in the book. Oh, yeah, of course, yes. All right, so we've met all the characters, and they've all got to scream at each other. And, again, the first part of this movie is kind of over-the-top and goofy. And that's why I say this movie is right between goofy and, and awesome. This is all the goofy stuff. Although we're going to get tragedy very quickly here because it's now New Year's Eve, and there's a big party in the ballroom, and everyone's down there and talking and blah, blah, blah. Anything happen that's important in this scene, I kind of forget. Uh, well, you, the, t the table setups are interesting um, because you have the captain's table, and at the captain's table is Reverend Scott and then the Rogos. And I just have to ask, how the heck did the former escort and the guy who's banished to Africa get a spot at the captain's table? Like, how, how bad are the rest of the passengers in the room? Yeah, how bad are they? That, I was wondering if maybe everybody gets to eat the captain's table, and this is just the last night, and they've rotated, and now we're down at the bottom of the barrel. The rogos get to eat there. <laughs> and then you have that poor purser that's stuck at this tiny little table with Robin. It's like the kid's table. It's like half the size of all the other tables, so I don't know what's going on there. <laughs> Yeah, the purser who claims he's the one in charge of the boat, I'm the guy who runs the ship, has to sit at the kids' table with freaking Robin. He's got a superiority complex, I think. <laughs> They're over there eating chicken nuggets and jello. <laughs> <laughs> and then you have the table you have the table with uh the Rosens and Martin, and they continue to point out how lonely and single he is. <laughs> yes, and they, they riff on his vitamin intake and we learn that uh Mrs. Rosen doesn't like single people. Single people she feels sorry for them. So as a as a single person, do you find that triggering? Were you upset by that? Slightly triggering, yes. Shelly Winters talking smack about you? Yeah. All the time. <laughs> okay, so here we go. Um, oh, 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 sorry. Before we get the big uh, Night of the Axe, I forgot. That this is where the Reverend gives his little sermon, right, where he's talking to everybody? Oh, yes, yes, yes. Your favorite scene, yeah, the one that inspired you as a lad. Also, fun fact, the, the uh, spot on the Queen Mary where he gave a sermon is uh, still there. And when I toured the Queen Mary, I had to um, grit my hands on the railing, just like Gene Hackman did. <laughs> <laughs> That's how you get coronavirus. Well, you know, these were, they were simpler times. <laughs> I love your dorkiness. Your dorkiness is amazing. Did you give the full Gene Hackman speech to your family? Isn't that right, Robin? Yep. <laughs> you bet. It's a cinch. <laughs> you hear that, sis? Listen to the sermon, sis. <laughs> that will be Robin's refrain through the whole movie. He will constantly scream at his sister and always call her sis, which I have never heard someone use that phrase in real life. It's only in TV shows and movies. Was that a, I, I, I guess you're the wrong person to ask if that was actual nomenclature for 1972. I don't know if it is. Yeah, that was about half a century before my time. <laughs> Damn you, Weiss. Okay, and yeah, the Reverend Sermon, he's telling all the people in the, on the boat, you know, don't pray to God to solve your problems. Pray to that part of God within you. God wants winners, not quitters. If you can't win, at least try to win. God loves triers. So, there you go. So, Ryan, that's the lesson there. God wants winners. It's a great speech. I li my 12-year-old self lived by it. I don't, I, don't, I don't know how far it got me, but I lived by it. Good. Just making sure I only have winners on this podcast, not quitters. 
Yeah, I've seen I've seen your lineup. You've had a few quitters. <laughs> Ouch, Ryan throwing shade. <laughs> you know, I, I love everyone. It's great. <laughs> yes. Except Robin, who can go to hell. Exactly. All right, so here we go. It's the New Year's Eve dance, and everyone's in the ballroom, and they're all wearing the stupidest hat. What the hell is up with those hats they're all wearing? 1970s. <laughs> that, that's another That's another thing I like about this movie, just the costumes and just the fact that they have to wear them the entire movie. Even like they're they're like climbing over stuff in heels and it's it's very colorful. It's great. <laughs> yeah, the, the hats are interesting. I'm an especially big fan of Nani and her band as they're performing for the people in the ballroom. And they're all wearing the typical 70s bright orange clothes. And all the rest of her band are all like straight up dirty hippies. Like <laughs> they all look like Shaggy from Scooby-Doo. got long hair and stuff. They have the big old mustaches. Like it's crazy. Her whole band. Yeah. Well, they even they even said that when Akers was talking to the the guy next to him, just how I think they were there for free. Just they picked him up and they said, hey, we can play. <laughs> what are they? They stowaways? <laughs> yeah, <it's> pretty much. <laughs> Got a whole band of Jack Dawson's that are storm the <laughs> ship and are giving everybody scabies. <laughs> OK, so so here's the accident. They're all in the ballroom celebrating New Year's Eve and they're getting ready to toast the new year and. Up in the, the bow of the ship, the captain's room, whatever it's called, they have learned that off the off the coast of Greece or whatever, there's been an earthquake, an underground earthquake, which has triggered some massive tidal wave. Yes. Now, now, <laughs> now I, lo I was reading some reviews of this, and they were saying earthquakes don't trigger tidal waves out at sea. They trigger tidal waves on the shore. You would not have a tidal wave out in the middle of the ocean, but apparently in this movie we do. And the tidal wave is about to absolutely blast the ship and knock it over. Yeah. And I read that Paul Gallico, uh, the, the guy who wrote the book, he based this, his book on something that happened to him. Like when he was on the queen Mary, like they got knocked over or something. And if it had been like just five inches over a little more like it would have turned upside down just like the movie so i don't know about the earthquake part but the actual idea of a ship being turned over because of a wave i guess is possible okay yeah i mean if you're in a storm i could see that yeah yeah i don't know if it, i don't know if they even needed to include the earthquake part but this movie's about characters though we don't need to worry about that well because the start of the movie they're in a storm you could have had it happen right then it would have made way exactly. more sense yeah i take fault I, I take issue with the pacing of this movie but anyway Hey, you're about to reach a quota for trashing my movie, Mario. Ryan, we have not begun yet. <laughs> <laughs> it's not a good sign we're, we're not even at the capsizing yet. Yes. Okay, so we're half an hour into the movie. We've met everybody, and they're all ready to go. And the boat is going to be hit with this massive wave. And Leslie Nielsen rushes up to the bow, and he – I assume he dies. We never see him again, but so we lose Leslie Nielsen, RIP. Right. Oh, and can I say one more thing about the – just right before this? I'm sorry. Please do. Okay. Um, my absolute favorite scene in the entire movie is when they're all singing and dancing and drinking to Auld Lang Syne. It is so good because, you know, for most of the movie, they're all screaming at each other. But this is like the one scene where everyone's happy. They're just they're dancing. The characters are pretty well established at this point. Um, it's, just, it's, it's so much fun. Um, Grandpa Joe just starts making out with the woman next to him. <laughs> and he's loving it. So... This is how you do it, Charlie. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, not all, they're, they're the one scene where they're not screaming because they're all sing screaming. They're singing very loud. So it's, exactly. <laughs> yeah, we, we hear Robin pretty well when he's singing too. <laughs> and they're all doing the thing where they hold hands and 
uh, bounce their arms up and down as they're holding hands, which, A, once again, that's how you get coronavirus. But B, that is, you virus. is that a typical New Year's Eve thing that you do the little bounce dance with your arms? I've never seen that before. I don't know. I'm. My New Year's Eves are typically spent watching this movie, so I don't. I don't really know. <laughs> yeah, Ryan and I are dorks who don't go out of the house, so perhaps we're not <laughs> the best to ask. <laughs> Fancy social gatherings. What's the protocol? Okay, so yeah, they're all doing their little dance and all things sighing and whatever how the hell you pronounce that, and they get hit with the wave and everything flips over, and it's kind of a cool effect. You know, it's a model ship getting hit in a bathtub, but it's actually pretty realistic looking, wouldn't you say? It, it's really well done, even for today's standards, because you know there's no CG, CGI attached. So just seeing like all these things happen like in real life is really cool. Yeah, I've seen mystery science theater movies that do not do that effect well, where it's clearly just a toy boat in a bathtub. Uh-huh. They are much worse than this one. This one pulls it off pretty well. Yeah. Yeah, um, they filmed this in a tank at Malibu Creek State Park which is where they filmed like Planet of the Apes and like Pleasantville and a whole bunch of other movies because mm-hmm. Fox, Fox used to own a bunch of that land. Um, the tank is now a parking lot, but a lot of their models they use, like the, the tower from Towering Inferno, they filmed out there. Um, so, it's, yeah, it was, it's, it was a pretty big tank, so it was, it was really cool to see how they did that. Yeah, it was especially good because in the tank, skinny uh, Shelly Winters is a skinny lady. <laughs> Very skinny. Yes. We'll get to that quote, one of the best scenes later. Okay, so the ship has been hit by a tidal wave and knocked over, and all, all the people on the top of the boat die. All the people who are in the ballroom at the bottom of the ship live, but the boat is now flipped over. And it's kind of uh, interesting. That's why this movie was notorious at the time, because all the sets are upside down. The entire movie is them in an upside-down boat. Right. Yeah, and that's that's been made fun of time and time again. Poseidon Adventure has been parodied in – uh, Simpsons and like there was a Spaceballs animated series. Uh, I think Futurama kind of paired it somewhat. Family Guy kind of did that same thing. So just the the idea of, of the ship getting turned upside down that was a kind of a big deal for a while. Okay, yeah, and that's the Movie Land Wax Museum exhibit that I saw in '81. It was all an upside down set. That's why it was so cool. Mm-hmm. Just rubbing it in that you didn't see it. Okay, uh, this has been a fun podcast. Thank you, everyone. Uh, <laughs> don't be a quitter be a winner not a quitter yes all right that's fair that's fair i'll do it for reverend scott thank you it's a cinch we'll finish it up here okay 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 so everything is everyone is like all discombobulated in the ballroom now and they've been knocked upside down and lots of people have been injured or killed and they don't know what happened the boat is now upside down they're now on the ceiling and they're trying to figure out what happened and the what happens? The purser is like the number two in command on the boat is telling everyone to stay calm. But right off the bat, some people want to escape. So it's gonna, they're going to break into two camps here. Right. And the purser says he's number two in command. He's probably more like 30th in command. But, you know, he, he, he tells himself that. But, uh, yeah, you have him and a pretty the majority of the room saying, let's just stay behind. Let's wait for rescue. And then you have Reverend Scott's group. It was actually Martin's idea to go up through the ship to the – engine room and hull area to where you can get out through the hull. Uh, that's because that's, that's a more possible way of getting rescued compared to just staying there at the bottom of the ship. Yeah. And I've heard there's a rumor that the steel there is only one inch thick. I have heard that. I think a uh, <laughs> certain third engineer named Charlie might've told me that. And I think a certain 10 year old might've said that over and over too. I don't know. <laughs> yeah. Luckily we have a 10 year old boat expert that knows the thickness of the metal. So anyway, we'll get to that. But first let's talk about the Susan rescue scene. Lots of yelling, lots of screaming. Yeah, so Susan, the sister, this is the brother and sister, Robin and Susan. She's the teenage girl. She is now 
on the ceiling, which was the floor before, but she's like on the bottom of a table. She got somehow got stuck on a table and she didn't fall to the ceiling like everybody else did. So she's up in the air on the other side of this table that's been bolted to the ground. And Robin, very helpfully, you remember what he screams, his words of wisdom here? Is the word sis involved? It is. He says, what are you doing up there, sis? <laughs> that's a stupid question. <laughs> yes. Robin, hey, what are you doing up there, sis? And she's like, I'm on a table, you little. And then she reels off a string of curse words. But so, yeah, so there are, they have to figure out a way to get Susan down from the uh, from the ceiling. And this is where one of the preacher's greatest moments, Reverend Scott, realized we'll use a tablecloth and we'll have her jump. It's effective. It is, especially when her little brother is cheering, come on, sis, and it's a cinch. Yeah. And they get really impatient. Like Reverend Scott just starts screaming at her. Let's go. Let's go. Let's go. Now, why would somebody scream in this movie? I don't know. It doesn't happen that often. You, you, it's, it's weird that they chose this scene for that to happen. In. <laughs> so she eventually jumps. She's scared. We will learn that Susan is scared, but she'll eventually jump, and she lands on the uh, tablecloth. They save her. And that's Reverend Scott's first heroic moment. And this is officially where we split into two camps because what happens? There's a the big there's a big Christmas tree that's there because the tree after Christmas. This big metal Christmas tree. It falls, and then at some point, Acres. He's up on a ledge, right? Right. Yeah, and they, they decide that it's smarter just to meet him up there by climbing up the Christmas tree to get to him so they can make their way up through the ship. Yep. As Roger Ebert pointed out, very convenient that that Christmas tree was metal and shaped like a ladder. Roger Ebert notoriously said this was a terrible movie, but he still enjoyed it. He, he was enjoying it. He goes, it's kind of fun, even though you know it's terrible, but you get wrapped up in it. And that's one of the things he's like, I love the Christmas tree that conveniently gives them the ladder up to the top. Exactly. Although there is a little blooper here. I just read on IMDb Trivia where this, okay, so it's a, it's a big metal Christmas tree. It falls down, and they're going to use it. They're going to brace it up to this ledge and walk up it there. But as they're picking it up, do you hear Ernest Borgnine accidentally drop the F word? I, I read that on IMDb. Um, I have not, like, I never caught that, though. <laughs> yeah, I just caught it today. He's like, holy F, that's heavy. You can hear him saying it. it's not real. It's like an ad lib. <laughs> yeah, yeah, but they like they kept it in, apparently. Yes, and he yells it, so it's good. Yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, so there's this Acres guy, this busboy up on a ledge, and that ledge leads to the galley. From the galley, they can walk up to the engine room to the hull of the ship that's one inch thick, I've heard. Uh -huh. Once they start climbing, uh, Scott is quick to tell every woman except Mrs. Rosen to uh, take off their gowns, which is kind of odd because Mrs. Rosen's outfit isn't much better than Linda and Susan's. So uh, <laughs> not sure what the strategy was for that. But anyway, I, I won't read too much into that. All girls, close off. Mrs. Rosen, keep them on, please. <laughs> <laughs> Although he makes them take off their clothes, but he does not have them take off their giant stiletto heel. Did you notice that? Right. That, I have noticed that. Yeah. <laughs> That's the optimal way to climb up a ladder in giant platform heels. That's the winter way, not the quitter way. So Gene Hackman, yeah, he has Mr. Rogo give his shirt to his wife, who's only in panties, and then he has Susan take off her gown, and they all climb up. And of course, who is the first one that the re that the good reverend or the good preacher sends up the ladder? He needs a monkey. <laughs> he needs a monkey. So let's make sure the child goes up the dangerous ladder first. Yeah, yeah, it's, <laughs> it's good insurance there. <laughs> so. And sadly, Robin does not plummet to his death here. I'm always rooting for it, but it does not happen. Sounds like he needs to read the book. 
<laughs> well, I mean, in the book, you got to put up with Robin for the whole movie, and then he dies. I was hoping for a quick, swift death. Right, that's fair. <laughs> so they all climb up the ladder, and they got to shove Shelly Winters up. Cause there's, and again, we're making jokes about her being fat, but that's literally in the script of the movie. There's constant references to how fat she is. Yeah, yeah, they, they do that on purpose. <laughs> like, it's, it's sad, but they, they do that on purpose, and she does that on purpose, too. Like, she gained the weight for the role. They wedge her into this ladder and push her up, and like they they gotta shove her up, and oh my god, oh dear, I'm too heavy. Mrs. Peter Pan, I am not. <laughs> yes. So, and they all go up, and this is where the Reverend argues with the purser one last time. We're going up. We're gonna have freedom, and the purser's like, "Everybody, stay down here. We will be safe. We will have order." And then, like within a minute, a flash flood comes in and kills everybody who stayed down there. So, good job, purser. Right. Well, and that's that's one thing I noticed too today. It's like this is seconds after he made that speech. So even if every single person wanted to go, they all would have died anyway. So <laughs> I'm not sure how much of a difference Reverend Scott's making here, but he, he tried. Well, Reverend Scott has an argument later in the movie that God is kind of a big jerk in this movie, and he's not wrong. Right. Yeah. Yeah. God's kind of a meanie in this one. Yeah. Okay. So they all climb up the tree up to the uh, galley to meet Acres, the bus boy, and of course we get Robin yelling at everyone, "It's a cinch! Come on!" Uh, and I, I do like that they are kind of supporting each other in this, and, and Reverend Scott's really trying to get everyone else to join them because um, in the remake with Kurt Russell, the 2006 one, the group that just kind of sneaks off, like they don't say, hey, everyone, come join us. Let's go escape. They just like sneak off off by themselves, and that movie's pretty – like we're not going to talk about the remake that much, but it's – have you seen it? I have not. I was not even aware there was a remake till like three days ago. Yeah, yeah. There were there was an NBC special that's like three hours long, and then there was the theatrical one with Kurt Russell and Richard Dreyfuss and all those guys. Um, it's on Netflix, but it's I enjoy every Poseidon iteration. Um, this one's obviously the best one, mm -hmm. but the Kurt Russell one definitely has a reputation of being soulless. Like in this one, there's a, there's a sense of community and everyone's trying to support each other despite yelling at each other every five seconds. But in that one, they're just they're all they don't really help each other out that much and just. It's just a very cold movie. This one, you you really are with the characters, and you, you're actually kind of rooting for them. How is the little annoying Robin child in the remake? Um, in the Kurt Russell one, he's about five times worse. And in the <laughs> NBC special that looks like a Hallmark movie, he's about 100 times worse. It's So like I, I have grown to appreciate Robin in this because we could have had a lot worse options. The kid in the NBC special, he uh, walks around with a video camera. It just <laughs> I cannot make this up. He like records everything because he wants to make a documentary. It's it's really bad. Hey sis, I'm gonna make a documentary, sis. It's word for word. <laughs> so you appreciate the subtle nuance of 1972, Robin? Yeah, and movies this period, like I watch some movies like on TCM every now and then, and nine times out of ten, there's a little kid in it, and the little kid is just always so annoying. So even though Robin is horrible, well not horrible, but even though Robin is kind of cringy in this. He's still pretty good compared to a lot of child actors at the time and just especially just those archetypes that those kids have. So he's it could be a lot worse. I appreciate you dying on the hill of defending Robin. <laughs> yeah, well, you know. It's a cinch. <laughs> okay, so yeah, they all go up there, although we do get a good speech here where Mrs. Rosen doesn't want to go up the heavy Mrs. Rosen and Reverend Scott comes over. And again, God bless Gene, ha Gene Hackman for giving this movie a lot of dignity. Gives her this long speech. He's like, you know, up there is life. Always choose life. Do this for your grandson. And so he will will her through most of this movie. Life, life matters very much, doesn't it? 
that is really the motto of staff picks. I like to think so. Glad you feel that way. Okay, so here we go. Everybody in the boat has died. They're all drowned at the bottom. We only have these. How many people? Nine, eight? I always forget. How many people are there? There's ten. You got Reverend Scott. You got the Rogos, the Rosens, the Shelbys. You have uh, Martin, Nani, and then Akers. Did you know that off the top of your head, or were you reading your notes? Um, both. Okay, good. I was a little worried you knew that right off the top of your head. I mean, I could probably do it off the top of my head, too. It is my favorite movie of all time, Mario. <laughs> I know. It would be a cinch. I got it. But yeah, it is, it is funny, though, because um, I'm always making parallels to Willy Wonka with this movie, because in Willy Wonka, if you don't count Wonka, there's 10 people in that, too. <laughs> um, and it's, it's pretty much the same plot. You know, you have people just kind of dying along the way. You got Grandpa Joe, who, who somehow survives everything. So I don't know. And I think to uh, drive that home, you just reminded me of something. The role of Mr. Martin for Red Buttons. I read that was written for Gene Wilder. They wanted him to play that role. Yes. Right. Horrible, horrible idea. But they did not do that. Wait a minute. Why would that be? Gene Wilder has the kindest eyes. He would have been perfect. That's fair. In the, like, the scene with the vitamins, he would have done well with that, I think. He, he has that kind of like smooth voice like when he's kind of talking, talking quietly. Mm-hmm. So that would have been good. But I just – it's hard for me to picture Gene Wilder like seriously like getting up through that ship, just like and and not like looking weird doing it. So <laughs> wait, a, wait a minute, you're cool with Grandpa Joe doing it, but not him. No, Gene Wilder is one of my favorite actors of all time, but I just I don't see him in this. I think Red Buttons does a good job. What about Slugworth? Could Slugworth make it up the ship? Slugworth would have played the purser, I think. <laughs> and then at the end of the movie, he would have come out and said, uh, "I'm the purser. I've been here the whole time, and I'm a good guy now." <laughs> yes. Okay. So, so we get up into the galley, and uh, the rest of the movie is all action scenes. I don't actually have that many notes for this movie because it's like all action set pieces. But basically, the gist of it is is that Rogo and the Reverend are going to fight Ernest Borgnine and Gene Hackman over leadership for the next half hour. Nani will be completely worthless and simper and whine, and the Rogos will argue, and Mrs. Rosen will constantly be overweight and too big to fit in things, and the kid will be annoying, basically. That's a perfect summary. I can't argue with that. <laughs> yes. Although they 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 have to they argue the the uh, physics of flash fires and fire doors and how to get through the boat. And luckily, little ten year old Robin is an expert on all of these things, and he will explain it to all of them at all times. Uh huh. And then Gene Hackman says, "Why don't you go in and test that out, Robin?" <laughs> yes, you go first. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> test out the integrity of that bridge, Robin. But yeah, there there are about like fifteen minutes in this movie where. Like, all the characters are still alive, and they're just kind of making their way clumsily through the ship. Like, they go through that flash fire room. Uh, they go up, like, upside-down stairs, like, where you're mm-hmm. they're pulling them up, like, with this fire hose thing. So it I, – I could say it might drag a little bit during, the, during those scenes just because there's not a whole lot happening yet, but it's about to pick up. Yeah. Well, I don't think it drags. Just I don't have much to say about it. You kind of have to see yeah. it to experience it. Although right. the scene where they go – again, this boat's upside down, so they have to go up a staircase, and they're going up the backside of it, so it's just a smooth ramp. There's no stairs, and they have to pull each other up with a fire hose. And this leads to one of the better running jokes in the movie where they have to pull Shelley Winters up with a fire hose. And Robin, the little 10-year-old, is not particularly sensitive to her condition. What does he call her? A 600-pound 600, 600 swordfish? <laughs> yes. Just a tip for you kids listening to staff picks. Do not call older, heavier woman a 600-pound swordfish. And to be fair, he wasn't saying that directly to her. He just said that uh, this was a similar experience to pulling one in with his dad. Don't worry, Mrs. Rosen. I can pull you up. I once pulled in a 600-pound swordfish with my dad off Hawaii. (laughs) 
as we all have. Robin is a walking faux pas. Uh-huh. <laughs> So yeah, so now they're you know they get up this little shaft, the, the the they get up the little slide, they get into this narrow hallway, they're walking around, and Robin, you know, all the women are terrified, you know, the water's gonna flood, we're gonna drown, and Robin of course knows the Andrea Doria remained upright for ten hours before it it sank, so they have lots of air. So luckily they have Robin leading them. Yeah, and why would he not know that? <laughs> exactly. So. <laughs> It's like, I'm going to steal a uh, quote from the room. Robin, you must be the expert on things. Hopefully my room people will get that. Overrated movie. It is kind of overrated, but I like the quotes. Have you done that on Staff Picks? I have not because it could not possibly need more love. Okay, that's the, that's good. Very good. Maybe one day. I, mean, I like riffing on it, but I, there's the room could not possibly need more attention. It gets enough as it is. Yeah, I think there's been a thousand podcasts on that already. Exactly. All right, so now the part where they go to a ventilator shaft. They have to go up this little steam shaft and go straight up. And, of course, we get more panic because it turns out Mrs. Rosen's kind of heavy. She might not fit. Yeah, and this is the first time that the uh, the production is letting us know this. <laughs> yes, it's, it's a very subtle plot point that Mrs. Rosen's a bit heavy. So so who, who wants to go first before uh, Mrs. Rosen? It's Mrs. Rogo, right, the, the hooker? Yes. And she says, I'm going next, so if all fat ass gets stuck in here, I won't be caught behind her. <laughs> Damn, that's cold. Just wonderful. <laughs> and, like, everyone's just kind of awkwardly staring at Mrs. Rosen after she says that. You know, in keeping with your Willy Wonka parallels, remember Augustus Gloop? Yo, Charlie, you always ask me how a bullet comes out of a gun? Watch this. <laughs> <laughs> Mrs. Rosen stuck in the tube. <laughs> yeah. After Mrs. Rogo says that, Mr. Rosen leans over and says to his wife, what she needs is a good kick of the pants. <laughs> Grandpa Joe still hanging in there, keeping it real. <laughs> Fetch me my bedpan. <laughs> okay, so so uh, once again, they have to go straight up this tube, and Mrs. Rosen has to be convinced, even though she doesn't think she'll fit. And Nani, of course... Nani's going to be useless here. I can't, I can't. And they have to convince her. And Mr. Martin, it's, it's the, you know, it's the, it's the sensitive subplot of the movie. Mr. Martin, the lonely bachelor, and Nani, the terrified girl. And he's going to look out for her. Now, do you find those, that couple sweet? Um, yes, but I have heard that in reality they hated each other. Yes, they also hated each other, those two actors. Although I heard later in life they became best friends, but during filming they hated each other. Right. Yeah, I, I would love to see what this movie was like behind the scenes because you have just so many strong personalities that – and they're just in such harsh conditions. Like I've heard like they were doing a lot of their own stunts, and they they filmed this in sequence. So like you know that just so many of them are just miserable while they're filming this, and there's there's no telling what kind of expletives they yelled during the production of this. I have heard they did complain because they had to do their own stuff, and it was a very physical shoot, and I heard Robin sucked. I don't know if he did. I just assume Robin sucked. <laughs> but yeah, Gene Hackman is notorious for being hard to work with. Shelley Winters is hard to work with. All the actors hated each other. It must have been very fun. Yeah, sure. I will give my wife's impression of Nani and Mr. Martin hanging out together. She's like, he's like 60 years older than her. It's creepy. Well, I'm I'm pretty sure that uh, judging by his uh, outfit, I don't, I don't think that he's too concerned with being attracted to her. <laughs> So he's a he's a confirmed bachelor is what you're saying. They just don't mention spell it out loud. Um, that's that's what I think it's hinted at. <laughs> okay, could be wrong. Could be wrong. <laughs> well, then it's then it's less creepy. Okay, I get it. I, I I never put two and two together. Do they actually hint at that in the movie? 
Um, I don't. I don't think so. That's just your take on it as a is a Poseidon expert. That's the the Poseidon of your Facebook group. I think t- tends to agree with that <laughs> assessment. Do they like write like Poseidon Adventure slash fic and stuff with like Mr. Martin and the purser? There's tons of fanfic and all sorts of stuff. <laughs> okay, so okay, so it's not creepy. He's looking out for. Her. I get it. I'll I'll reassure my wife because she finds that relationship very troubling. He he's not as bad as Charlie the Third Engineer. <laughs> wait, wait, is Charlie the Third Engineer in the book? Oh, Charlie's with children in the in the isolated boiler room. You're right. Yes. Right. Oh, Charlie. Oh, that's terrible. I never thought about that. You just made this movie darker for me. <laughs> well, you should read the book. Hey, Robin, I got some candy. Come on down to the boiler room. <laughs> I'm sorry, am I ruining this movie for you now? It's possible, but we'll we'll continue on. <laughs> okay, so they're all going up the tubes, and we're about to lose our first major character. Oh, no. I know, the star of the movie, Akers. <laughs> Akers, who could not do the Scottish accent, is rocked by a, there's an explosion while they're climbing up this tube, and he falls down into a pit of fiery water and instantly perishes. Yeah, and his death's kind of awkward because like he kind of looks like Frankenstein's monster when he falls off it. Like, like The cut of that is kind of weird. Um, but yeah, you, he falls down, and then Rogo looks for him for about two seconds and gives up. <laughs> well, you know, hey, Frankenstein's monster did hate fire, so that does make sense. That is fair, yeah. And you know, there's a cut scene here where after Akers dies, then the Oompa Loompas come out and sing a song about judgment about him. Yeah, yes, they do. <laughs> <laughs> what do you get when you climb up a pipe? A Scottish accent that's really terrible and ripe. Thank you for the rhyme. I appreciate the extra effort there. Yeah, I was, I was trying. Okay, so we lose Akers, the uh, busboy. He falls to his death, and Mr. Rogo, Ernest Borgnow, is supposed to look after him, and Rogo is berated by the Reverend for not looking out for him. And Reverend and Mr. Rogo are going to be at each other's throats the whole time here. It's beautiful, yeah. Um, this is like the ultimate confrontation between Scott and Rogo. The, there's a line where he says, I told everyone I was going to keep everybody out of here, and God damn it, I'm going to do it! Uh, just... <laughs> I, I sound just like Gene Hackman, I know. Is Gene Hackman a munchkin? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it's possible. It's possible. Um, but I, I love that line. I say it all the time. Um, any Anytime I'm with friends or family and we're doing something even remotely difficult or if they get cranky or anything, I say that line. And they, and they look at me really strangely, and then I lose friends. But it's worth it. <laughs> You're such a perfect host for this show. I love your dorkiness. <laughs> Again, I do stuff like this all the time. There's so many movies I just randomly quote. Nobody knows what I'm talking about. So I, I appreciate the effort. Yeah, and it's 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 such a great idea quoting a movie that no one under 30 knows. It's awesome. <laughs> that is the story of my college years right there. Yeah. People not knowing what the hell I'm talking about. As I'm throwing out Kentucky Fried movie quotes at them. Yeah. Well, that was a – college was a fresh experience for me, so let's not get into that. <laughs> okay. It was not a cinch for you. Yeah, not a cinch. Okay, so here we go. So they've lost Acres and they're going up, and this is where Robin, the little boy, is going to apologize for calling Mrs. Rosen a 600-pound swordfish. So at least he is a young, he's a very uh, cognizant young man when he's uttered a faux pas and he apologizes. And she's like, oh, that's – he's like, I didn't mean anything. I just meant you were like a big, fat fish. <laughs> yeah, I mean, that's how you're worried about? Anyway, she forgives him, and they will not come up again. So, But she says he's a good boy. 
So what else happens here? I just wrote on my note, Nani cries a lot. Yeah. Well, this is the scene where they kind of, they're like in Broadway, and so they all kind of split up because Broadway's that section that just kind of goes the length of the ship. Um, Reverend Scott's gone to go look for the engine room because the engine room is uh, apparently where they can escape. But uh, while Reverend Scott's off looking for the engine room, everyone else is kind of looking for supplies. And this is a scene, like whenever I mention this uh, movie to older people, so anyone like older, over 40, um, I always I always say Gosh, that uh, <laughs> this is always the scene that they talk about because Robin goes into a, a bathroom and there's uh, upside down urinals and toilets. So this, I mean, this seems to be the scene that everyone remembers. Like it, It's cool, I guess, but I don't know why this scene in particular everyone talks about but uh i guess when i was nine i was focused on other things going on you know what's funny is i that's my experience as well i said i was doing poseidon adventure on staff picks and a couple of people are like i love the upside down bathroom scene and i'm like i don't even remember that scene i had to look for yeah. it it's like very quick it's just the little kids in a bathroom that's upside down and nothing happens wait that's the big highlight yeah it's the that show still on equivalent <laughs> Yes. Like, wow, okay. Yeah, Robin's in the bathroom. Although, we forgot to mention they meet another group of survivors here. They do, yeah. They they meet up with the doctor and the nurse who are heading towards the bow of the ship. But Reverend Scott says, don't go that way, because the bow's underwater! Well, the doctor and the nurse know there's a whole supply of suppositories up in the front for everybody. (laughs) Yeah, the doctor's leading, like, the other group of survivors. We're going to the front! And Gene Hackman says, I'll just let you do his voice. What does he say? The bow's underwater! <laughs> yes. And so the the doctor and his survivors go to their death in front of the boat, and Gene Hackman goes to look for the engine room in the back, which I've heard has one-inch uh, thick steel in the back. Did you hear that? I've heard that from a couple of people. don't remember where, though. <laughs> Word on the street. And this is where they split up, where Rogo says, I'm going to lead us from now. And Scott says, let me go find the engine room. Give me five minutes. If I'm not back, you can lead and you can take everyone else. And this is where they start a lot of infighting. Who's going to go with who? Right. And I, I have no notes here for this section. I just I wrote they argue a lot. They do argue a lot. Um, I haven't mentioned this yet. So Mad Magazine, the very fine piece of literature, uh, I haven't read it in several years. But I remember that their parody of the Beside the Venture, they called uh, Reverend Scott Reverend Shout. Which is appropriate. That's pretty good. I like that. Yeah. <laughs> so the Reverend eventually goes and finds the way to the engine room, and he comes back and gets everybody. But as they're there, like this section of the boat gets flooded again. The water starts coming up. And this is where we really get the last 40 minutes of the movie. Again, this movie moves pretty quick. Yeah, it does. Where they have to go to the engine room to get out, but the problem is it's underwater. So they have to, like, swim through an underwater section to get to the engine room, which is above them. Uh-huh. Now, this is the scene that really stuck out to me as a kid, um, this scene where they're swimming underwater. Um, I had a pool growing up, but uh, even when I'd be at like friends' houses or at hotels or anything like that, whenever I was in a pool, I would pretend that I was in the Beside Adventure, and I had to like swim a long distance underwater. <laughs> um, I, I, I did it a lot, so I, it got to the point where I could hold my breath for at least a minute, but um, I'd get like my friends and family to do like obstacle like challenges like in the pool like kind of around the side of the pool and like if you like fell off or if you had to like get you know get a breath of air um you were killed off and you were eliminated from the game <laughs> but uh yeah so fewer and fewer kids my age came to my pool as uh, time went on our seven-year-old out playing poseidon adventure again like should we put this kid in a special school what's up with him <laughs> 
time. No, that's cool. I like that. That's cool. You this yeah. because this scene is very harrowing. It looks like it was dangerous to film, to be honest. Right. So while everyone was obsessing about urinals, I guess I was thinking about this scene. You were learning life survival skills. Exactly. And that's why I'm so successful now. <laughs> As an online educator during a pandemic. Yeah, exactly. I can all go back to Poseidon. <laughs> yeah, so young Master Ryan here could hold his breath for a minute underwater, which is very impressive. But guess what, Ryan? There's a character in this movie who can hold their breath for two minutes and 47 seconds. Now, who do you think that would be? Um, anyone except Shelley Winters? <laughs> no, that's wrong. It turns out it is Shelley Winters. You're wrong. Oh, my gosh. Wow. Yeah, so as they say on Mystery Science Theater, we have plot convenience playhouse here where they have to dive underwater to get to the engine room and someone has to drag a rope through to show the pathway so they all can follow it. And it turns out that Shelly Winters, big 600-pound swordfish, was once the underwater swimming champion of New York, and she has a medal around her neck that proves it. It's pretty hardcore. I'm, it's interesting that she took a medal to a New Year's Eve party, but... <laughs> Why was she wearing that medal 40 years later? She must, I mean, she is married to Grandpa Joe, so she's not really got a lot going on. <laughs> I mean, do I carry my Little League trophies with me everywhere? Like, look, <laughs> when I was in third grade, I hit a triple. <laughs> look at the spelling bee medal. So, so she's a middle-aged woman, very successful. You know, what did they, they owned a business. What business did she and her husband own? Hardware business, I think. I'm glad you knew that because I didn't write that down. Successful life. She's getting ready to retire. Still wears her childhood swimming medal. Who doesn't? <laughs> of course. So she begs the reverend. The reverend, Gene Hackman, is going to dive under. Like, I got to go in the water. And she won't let him. She has to. She goes, I was the underwater swimming champion. Let me. You guys have pushed me and dragged me this entire time. My big fat corpse. And let me do this. I'm the best at it. But they will not let her do it. Yeah. She's being really obsessive about it. Like, and they're all like yelling at her, just shut up. Just let him do this. Now, I read some trivia here that in the script, she was supposed to go. The, the reverend's supposed to let her go, and she's going to have her big hero moment. Uh -huh. But on the spot, Gene Hackman decided there's no way the reverend would let her go first. He would sacrifice himself first. Wow, yeah. I think, I think he's right. I, I stand by Gene Hackman's uh, argument there. To keep it the way they did? Yeah. I mean, the way it's in the movie, that's because Gene Hackman changed the script. Yeah. Yeah. It's not in his character at all to, to let her go. Send the middle-aged fat woman in first. <laughs> well, then again, he did send the little kid up the tree first, so maybe he does do that. He's a, he's a wild card. <laughs> Send the fat one in the water. <laughs> but it's, it's funny, but he, he does end up going in there, and Mrs. R Rosen, she's being like the biggest know-it-all about it. It's like, take a deep breath. And when he goes in, he like takes the littlest tiny breath he can just pays no attention to her advice i have to watch for that i never noticed take a deep breath takes the tiniest little guppy breath gene hackman spiting shelly winters just because he can yep so, so the reverend goes down again he's got to swim underneath this passage the ryan weiss home game here where you swim through the pool and try not to drown and, but he gets trapped a piece of metal falls on him he's supposed to be down there and they learn that there's a, a tragedy all of a sudden the rope goes slack he's not pulling it and so luckily we have a hero our underwater swimming champ is going to dive in and go save him yeah and that's the thing like did she have to dive in could she not just like kind of get in the water like kind of get ready and just take a deep breath like did she really have to dive was that necessary <laughs> like from back to school doing the triple lindy three yeah <laughs> 
I, I read some trivia that Shelly Winters trained with like an Olympic swimmer for this movie. So she'd look realistic swimming. Why was she training with an Olympic swimmer? All she has to do is dive in. And there's like a couple underwater shots. Like when she's doing laps and stuff. Right. I know. I, I was, I was thinking about that too today. It's like, she does. I mean, you, you'll see her in the water for like what? Five, 10 seconds at a time. Like there's, you don't, you don't really see much going on. <laughs> she does. She does her own stunts. That, that dive was pretty impressive though. That's the thing. She actually does that dive. That's a good dive. Yeah. I was watching for her. I'm like, that's a stunt woman. Like, no, that's Shelly Winters in her, all her winter weight. She's packed up and she actually does the dive in this little tiny confined space. It's actually fairly impressive. I got to yeah, say. It is. And so Mrs. Rosen, who's been the brunt of every fat joke for the whole movie, dives in and proves her underwater swimming mastery where she goes and rescues the reverend and drags his sorry ass into the engine room and they surface. And then tragedy, Ryan. She makes some funny noises here. <laughs> yes. I, here's my notes. I will let you summarize it if you'd like to do it a little more succinct, a little uh, more eloquently. I just wrote Shelley Winters has a heart attack, chews the scenery and then dies. That's a beautiful summary, yeah. <laughs> yes, she, she rescues the reverend, and then she gives the quote. This is the most famous quote in the movie. I'll give you the honor because you love it. You know which quote I'm talking about. In the water, I'm a very skinny lady. That's right. That's the punchline to her whole story. She's fat, but in the water, I'm a very skinny lady. And then she dies. And then she dies. <laughs> <laughs> Rest in peace, Shelly Winters, who in the water is only a 400-pound swordfish. Exactly. <laughs> yeah, but she, her death scene is majestic. And I should point out, like, it's a little over the top. She's like, ugh, yeah, ugh, like chewing up the scenery. <laughs> <laughs> but I should point out in her defense, Shelly Winters was nominated for an Oscar for this movie, and it is probably the best. I mean, Gene Hackman's probably the strongest actor. She's probably number two. But it's a little over the top in this scene, I got to say. Yeah. Yeah, I, I had that in my notes. Like, I mean, she's over the top, but it got her an Oscar nomination, so I guess she was doing something right. Yeah, so, I mean, we do have a, a grudging respect for Shelley Winter. She adds a lot, and she's kind of the heart of this movie. But this scene is right there in the middle of Goofy and Awesome as she has a minute-and-a-half heart attack and slowly succumbs. Yeah, and I think it was honestly, like, pretty bold of them to kill her off in this. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to say this about one or two other deaths in this movie, but uh, – She's kind of the heart of this group, mm -hmm. and like she's gotten close with the kids, and she's like kind of supporting everyone else. Like it's, it's really kind of bold of them to that they killed her off in this way. So it's it's, it's pretty surprising, especially after like she saves everyone. And I guess I guess you know I, I get why it works for the narrative, but it's it's still surprising. Yeah, and she's the biggest name actor in the movie too, probably. Yeah, it was a. This is a big moment. This is the emotional centerpiece of the movie, but it is a goofy scene. Although she gets a little speech. She gets to talk to the reverend, and he's like, uh, she's like, gives him the pendant. Give this pendant to my grandson. I'm going to die. It, it represents life. It's the sign for life. <laughs> yes. What is that? Chai? Is that what that is? I forget the name of that pen, the, the symbol. I have no idea. I need to study some of uh, my Judaism a little bit more. Yeah, it turns out she's Jewish. Did you know that? Did not know that. It's crazy. Mentioned that many times. Okay, so she dies and she and he just he cries. Gene Ackman has a good moment here where he cries over poor Mrs. Rosen that has sacrificed herself and they lay the corpse of Shelley Winters up against a little pylon. And then everyone else has to swim through because he has pulled a rope that can follow the rope underwater. Although we learn here that Robin has a skill. Robin can swim three lengths in his pool at home. Sis can only swim two. 
<laughs> so, shut up, Robin. Shove it, Robin. <laughs> yes. So, so they send Robin over under the water, and unfortunately, he does not drown or he's not crushed by metal, so he makes it. You should read the book. <laughs> Is this where he dies in the book? No, uh, in the book, he like in the scene where he's like just goes off to the bathroom. They never find him. <laughs> so <it's> just <laughs> there's no closure. No, there's not. Well, the ship sinks in the book, but uh, the, the, yeah, the parents are like, well, I guess he's dead. I prefer to think he falls into like a wood chipper, that there's like a wood chipping room. <laughs> Robin goes headfirst into it. A urinal falls on him. <laughs> yes. <laughs> urinal and then into the wood chippery. <laughs> they, they often had those on luxury liners back then. It, it was sponsored by Fargo. Yes. So, so everyone swims through. And of course, Nani can't swim because Nani can do nothing. Nani is a loose lump of flesh. And Mr. Martin has to put his hand over her mouth and cover her air and swim because she can't swim either. He's very nice for her. How, how does she make it through this movie, by the way? There's three or four characters I have that same question about. Yeah. Grandpa Joe and Nani are going to survive and Robin, and they shouldn't. Those three should not make it at all. No, they should not. I mean, yeah, Robin should be thrown into a propeller at some point. The Reverend's like, yeah, or Mr. Rogo would have just beaten the hell out of that kid at some point. Mm-hmm. Yeah, if if the deaths were, like, switched, were, like, the six that survived or the ones that died and the four that did die are the ones that survived, I was like, I could see that. They're the strong ones. That's some of your alternate fan fiction in your group that those they, they write that? Oh, yeah, I've, read, I've written several essays. It's fine. <laughs> the expanded universe for Mrs. Rosen, her backstory and stuff. It's it's like Clue. There's three different endings. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> Damn it. We got the one where Robin survived. I don't like this ending. <laughs> <laughs> Here's how it really happened. Robin's into the propeller. <laughs> this is terrible. Do you want the urinal or the toilet to crush him? <laughs> yes. Turn to page 53. Yes. <laughs> okay so here we go they're at the end of the movie here and there's only one more door to get out of the ship and it's like a fire door and there's this big steam valve you have to turn to open it and it's a problem because it's like not reachable you have to jump up to get it this is the big emotional dramatic uh, sacrifice at the end of the movie here and i will let you set this one up for people oh we're skipping a death here well yeah okay okay feel feel free to throw in the death here (laughs) so they're, they're they're doing this big climb up these different catwalks up to this lever that'll open uh, the engine room up to the hull area where they can – or shaft alley where they can finally escape. Um, before I mention the death, I just want to stop and applaud John Williams and his score here because for a lot of this movie, there's no music at all. And I mm-hmm. think that actually kind of benefits the movie. Kind of It kind of makes it a little more realistic. But he and the rest of the production, they know exactly when to have music, when to not. They know the kind of music to play. It's optimistic at the right times. It's dire at the right times. But this scene here, when they're climbing up to the top uh, in the engine room, it's so so good. Um, I've <laughs> when I whenever I'm running or hiking, I listen to this main theme because it's so optimistic. It it just it's so atmospheric. It puts you right there with them. It it really helps you keep going. It's it's really good. Yeah, I guess we yada yada over the part that John Williams did the score for this movie. Yeah, and this was this was pre Jaws and Star Wars and Superman. Like, he, I don't think he had done a whole lot at that point. Yeah, it's kind of funny because when you think of this movie and you think of music, you think of the morning after or the song from the Poseidon Adventure, as it's known on the street. Right. But the score is actually much better when you listen to it. That's much more prominent, and that's like the DVD menus that score. It's a much different. It's 
Like you, you're people think of the wrong music from this movie. I think. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the score, the score is really good. Okay, so as you've said that, that being said, lead us into the death. Okay, so they're all climbing up. Um, they're right almost at the point where they get to that lever that'll open up that room in the shaft alley. Um, but then the ship kind of rocks back and forth real quick, and then we see our good friend Linda Rogo fall to her death. And there is a big thump, too. I didn't even catch that until today, but when she falls, you hear a thump. Yeah, I wonder if she did her own stunt there. That's a good stunt. She falls. I mean, she's in her panties and the pink shirt, and she falls into the fire water. And it looks like it's her, but I don't know. I think it, I think it is her. It was a good stunt. I tipped my cap on that one. Yeah, absolutely. But uh, besides the water scene where they're swimming, this was also the scene that just I vividly remember watching for the first time because I went into the movie blind. I had no idea who lived. I had no idea who survived uh, or who died. And seeing Linda fall here, I was – so shocked i had i could not believe that this was happening and i get like she's unlikable you know but i was not expecting her to die at all um and it just comes out of nowhere too because they're kind of right there at the end so it's that's that's another thing i like about this movie because like with a lot of slasher movies you can say just right from the beginning who's going to live and who's going to die but with this one you really don't know and that's that's kind of what kind of draws you in and makes you right there with the characters yeah, it doesn't fit her story arc at all. Everybody else that dies, you can see why, like, Akers, they didn't really need him. Shelley Winters has to make the big sacrifice to finish her arc. But Linda doesn't have to. She just does. She's looks extraneous, and they just kill her, and it comes out of nowhere. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, the three deaths there happen within, like, five or ten minutes with each other. Yep. Although we will have one bigger one, so I kind of forget that she dies. But yeah. yeah, she falls here, and Mr. Rogo is heartbroken, and he's furious. He tells the Reverend, you killed her. This is your fault. You said you were going to get us all, all out of here alive. And the Reverend starts to feel bad, like he's letting these people down. And this is where he has his angry confrontation with God. Yep. We've come all this way, no thanks to you. <laughs> I had no idea he had such a high voice, but it is fairly accurate, your Gene Hackman impression there. He yells at God, why are you doing this to us? We get no help from you. We have to do it all on our own. And then he says, and we're going to do it. Just stay away from us. Stop making it harder. Leave us alone. And then he jumps up and Gene Hackman starts turning the valve. The valve is like way out over a catwalk. And if you jump out there, you're not going to get back. And there's like the steam valve hitting it. So it's all like burning. And he jumps out. He makes the sacrifice for everybody else. He will open the steam valve, open the door, and he tells God, if you need one more sacrifice, take me. And this is like his last defiant act as a preacher. He opens the valve just to spite God, and then he basically, his arms are tired, his hands are burned, and he falls and drops to his death. Yeah. Now, this scene has always fascinated me because, you know, with Mrs. Rogo, you know, she falls and she lands with a thump. But here, he lands in water. So, I mean, I feel like he could just kind of swim over and just, like, climb back up again. But I don't know. It's – I guess his hands were burning and all sorts of stuff, and maybe he, like, uh, inhaled a lot of fumes and all that. So maybe he died and drowned. But I don't know. But his death's always been a little weird for me, but I guess it, it, it fits with the story arc. 
I've seen a lot of people agree with you, and I agree with you the first time I watched this, too. Like, why does he die? He just drops in the water. And, like, yeah, there's flames, but if you're in the water, you should be able to go under the flames and drop out. And I've seen other people, too, saying, why does he die? He just falls in the water. But I guess there's extraneous circumstances we're not thinking of here, like his hands being burned off. Yeah. Yeah, and that's, that's, that's another thing that's always made me kind of laugh. It's like that that wheel he's turning is super, super hot, and he doesn't seem to be in much pain while he's doing that. <laughs> <laughs> that's true <laughs> gene hackman normally a very strong actor does not really convey that this this uh this wheel he's turning is molten metal hot the one time when he should be screaming at the top of his lungs uh is the one time he's not screaming at the top of his lungs the wheel in the sky keeps on turning though in the words of journey that he turns the wheel opens the thing and then he plummets to his death and so yeah in the last couple minutes we had mrs rosen die have a heart attack we had mrs rogo fall to her death and splatter on something and we had him die and everyone's traumatic especially the spouses like poor grandpa joe is traumatized i guess we kind of jumped over the fact that the reverend gave him a pep talk after that he did yeah it was it was, it was good he's like you got one minute see ya <laughs> yes now before that he does say uh your place is with the living mr rosen come with us if you don't come with us her death is meaningless yeah it is a good scene and Grandpa Joe's like, burp, Charlie, burp. <laughs> You're a swindler and a crook. How could you do such a thing? <laughs> so so with the reverend dying and sacrificing himself, he's opened the last door and he is now out of the commission. That means we have room for finally the person who's always wanted to be the leader. Who is the begrudged leader that now steps up? Uh, well, they want it to be Rogo, but I mean, it's, it's still kind of Robin, but ultimately I think it's Rogo. Come on, mister. It'll be a cinch. Lead us. You're a cop. It's one inch thick. <laughs> All right, you, that's enough. Yeah. So Mr. Rogo is supposed to be the leader and he's just traumatized. His wife has died. The only person he's ever loved, but it's Mr. Martin, meek little Mr. Martin, who gives him the pep talk to be our leader. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh, Poor Mr. Martin. He's he's trying so hard the whole movie to be a leader here. And, you know, there's only so many characters left, so he, he finally has the somewhat of a capability to do it. Yeah, it's funny because Mr. Martin's technically the heart of and soul of this group. He's the one that told them to go up, not wait. He's the one that talks Rogo into being their leader. He drags Nani's sorry ass through this entire movie and protects her. Like, Mr. Martin's the real hero here. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, a lot of people uh, just assume that Gene Hackman's the one that had the idea of going up, but it was originally Martin. That is correct. So that's what we do on Staff Picks. We give uh, posthumous credit to Mr. Martin, the true hero here. This is a very academic podcast. <laughs> and I don't think he screams. He might be the only character who never screams in the movie. I don't. Yeah, he really doesn't compared to the rest of them. I think if he screams, he might give Nani a heart attack. So that's probably why he has to keep the voice down because she's like a, a skittish little hedgehog. Mm -hmm. And so this is really the end of the movie. Martin's like, what kind of cop are you, Rogo? You're supposed to lead us. And Ernest Borgnine finally gets that look in his eyes. Fine, I will be the leader. And all he does is open a door. And that's the end of the movie. <laughs> yeah. Good. Thank you for leading us through that door that anybody could have opened. He did a really good job just knocking that uh, hole with a pipe. It's very, very uh, great leadership qualities. Yeah. So they get through the last door. Rogo leads them, Ernest Borgnine. And they get to the hole. And they're like, we're down here in the hole, but we can't get through. Robin, you lied to us. Turns out 10-year-old kids can be wrong sometimes. But Robin, in his defense, says, no, the steel's only one inch thick. See, mister? <laughs> I don't think so, sir. That's right. Screw you, Rogo. <laughs> <laughs> 
go to hell, old man. I'm going to dance on your grave. I'm Robin. So as they're there, right when they get into the hole, that's when they hear tapping on the outside. Like there's people outside trying to rescue them. And mm-hmm. So they all stick, pick up pipes. Now, this is my favorite part of this, this scene where they're all picking up pipes and banging on the roof to the, let the rescuers. Except Grandpa Joe does nothing. He's just standing there looking. Yeah. Like, pick up a damn pipe, old man. How hard is it? And he's yelling at them to, like, keep trying. It's like, why don't you do something? <laughs> keep hitting, Charlie. Hit that hole. <laughs> Have you tried burping? <laughs> yes. Grandpa Joe somehow is going to survive, and Nani's going to survive. They've done nothing the whole movie. But this is where the rescuers go through the hole with a welding torch or a blowtorch, blow open it up, and rescue them. And that's really – it's like a very abrupt ending. Yay, we're out. They get in a helicopter, and just the credits start. Well, originally it was supposed to be more of an ending where you see, like, the ship as a whole. You see other ships coming in from the distance, but they didn't have any money left in the budget. I think, I think that's what, why – either that or they just didn't have time. But they just – they can only show, like, part of the ship, and they, they see the helicopter flying off. Um, I do want to say one of the biggest things, maybe the biggest thing that I love about this movie is just how you were with the characters the entire time throughout all of this. Um, I mentioned the two remakes. You got the one with Kurt Russell, but then you have the three-hour NBC special that was really weird. Um, One thing that that movie did is that they were always cutting to the outside world and just the rescue efforts. So you're, you're really separated from the people that are actually like in the ship, and you don't connect with them at all. With this movie, you're with them the entire time. So, like, you see their struggles, uh, you see their desperation, and just and you're rooting for them. So, fi- finally, like, when they do get to safety and you see the line that's getting carved out in the hole and it's opened and you see daylight, it's so satisfying. Like, you, you feel exhausted with them. Mm-hmm. Everyone just looks so terrible, which is great because they filmed it in sequence. But uh, you, you really are with them. And once you see daylight after just being so dark and depressing the whole movie um it's it's really really cool i i don't really know of a movie that does it to the effect that this one does yeah it's a very claustrophobic movie it's always filmed in little corridors it's dark there's fire around and then you, at the end of the movie you see the daylight and it's like hope i'm yeah i'm trying to think of a movie that'd be like that too there's one there's one where the it's a horror movie my daughter wants to do uh two two above two below or something where they're in the parrot that oh as above so below yeah that one where they're on the catacombs and you see the sunlight at the end that's their hope but yeah, it's like that. But this is the type of movie that I can imagine the audience probably applauded at the end because it's like you kind of experience it. You feel you're there with them the whole movie, like you said. Uh-huh. And everyone just looks so terrible, too. Like they are so dirty. And just when they finally get up on the ship and just get out, it's and they're all hugging each other and they're getting to safety and stuff like you're real, you're glad that they got this far and they actually made it. Yeah, and they, again, you have good actors selling and kind of over-the-top story, but it does work. I mean, Ernest Borgnine is, has a lot of good dramatic scenes, too, and they get there at the end, and they get out. And like, like you said, there were budget problems in this movie. I think I read that as well. They went over budget a couple times, over schedule. So, yeah, they, they wanted to shoot a lot more stuff at the end, but they just couldn't convey it. So it really just kind of ends. But, like, I really do, despite me making fun of the goofiness of it, it is a satisfying movie to watch, and I always get engrossed in it every time I watch. I'm impressed with some of the stunts they're doing and some of the the, uh, the set pieces they designed, especially for 1972. It's kind of ahead of its time in terms of special effects. Absolutely. Yeah, it was, it was a big deal. And I think that's about it. We've covered a very infamous, big famous uh, movie that uh, it's very simple. That's the thing. I don't really have a lot to say about the set pieces. You kind of have to watch them to admire them, but did I, did we do it justice? Did we cover everything for you? I think we did. Yeah. Um, I hope that 
a lot of people, I mean, your age and my age, uh, either revisit it or watch it for the first time because there really is a lot of cool stuff here. Yeah, and again, it is dated as many movies are, but movies are a product of their time. They're going to be dated. It wasn't made for a 2020 audience. It was made for a 1972 audience. And again, huge movie for its time, the Titanic of its day, sixth biggest grossing movie all time. And I read when they moved it to television television a couple years later in 74, when it aired on TV, it was like the highest rated TV movie ever up to that point. It was like, this was like a huge phenomenon, this movie. Yeah, it it was pretty great. And that part of like it being dated, I think it's part of why it's so great, because like the lack of music, just the, the fact that it's so over the top, like they wouldn't make something like that today. You know, the the way movies are made today are just so different than how they were back then. That's part of the charm, I think. Yeah, that's the thing. You could add about an hour of filler to this movies, which they would probably do nowadays because they want it to be epic. Yeah, it doesn't feel like there's much filler and it. it goes pretty quick. It's a two hour movie and it kind of flies. Mm hmm. Yeah, I always, every time I watch it, I forget. Just once Mrs. Rosen dies, like it's it's pretty much over, and they still have two deaths after that. Yeah, although I am shocked, you know, knowing how they do movies and knowing this is the movie that made um, the morning after a big hit. I am shocked when they get out of the boat. That's not the music that plays during the end credits. Yeah, it feels like it should be. Right. Um, a lot of those Irwin Allen movies, uh, The Swarm, Towering Inferno, I believe this is true. They they have that same blue background and yellow font, huh. uh, yellow lettering. So as I don't know why they do that, but yeah, very very different compared to how it'd be today. Okay. And once again, this is one of the big disaster movies of the 70s. It was a big genre. They had all sorts of them. Any disaster you could think of, other than coronavirus, but. <laughs> Are there, are there any other disaster movies that you like, or is this one head and shoulders above everything? Um, I do appreciate the other Poseidons. We haven't talked about the sequel, uh, Beyond the Poseidon Adventure, which is – it's objectively terrible. It has 0% on Rotten Tomatoes, but I still enjoy it You know, once every couple years or so. There's That one's with Michael Caine and Sally Field and a bunch of other famous people, but um, it's, it's, pre it's pretty bad. Um, as far as disaster movies goes, I mean – Towering Inferno, I think, is pretty good. I like that one a lot. Um, it's got a kid in it, too. It's got Bobby Brady in it, but uh, <laughs> he's he's not in it as much as the kid in this one is. Stay away from the fire, sis. <laughs> yeah. Cindy! Help, I'm smoldering. <laughs> this is definitely the, the best of the disaster movies, I would say. I like the airport movies. Now, those were kind of ruined because Airplane ruined every one of them, but some of the uh -huh. airport movies are pretty good. I've never... I've, I. Towering Inferno, I've seen a couple times. It never really registers with me, but I like these disaster movies. They were big for their time. Although, I would like to follow up on Beyond the Poseidon Adventure. How the hell do they make a sequel to this movie? Does Do, this, do they sink again? That's a, that's a great question. Well, because they were over budget and the ship doesn't sink, they just fly away from it. The, the ship stays afloat for another 12 hours or so. And so you have Michael Caine, who once the salvage rights the ship he's just off doing his own thing in another boat he comes to the boat with two other people um and goes into the ship and tries to like get a bunch of money and stuff <laughs> and you also have like villains in the movie that are trying to get this crate of plutonium <laughs> and so like there's like shootouts in the movie it's it's really really bad it's the libyans <laughs> yeah there, there are shootouts in a Poseidon adventure movie it's it's interesting and and you say that as a zero percent rating it's hard to believe, I know. The hell you say. <laughs> does it end with does it end with Michael Caine stabbing a great white shark with the bow of his ship? It, and then the shark blows up, yes. yeah. That 
Facebook group I'm in about the Poseidon Adventure fans, uh, they all hate. I mean, you have one or two that might appreciate, like, watch them every now and then, but there's a lot of those in there. Like, they don't even acknowledge the other Poseidon movies. <laughs> like, I can at least have fun with them, but you say the words beyond the Poseidon Adventure, like, you might get kicked out of that group. <laughs> wow. That is a toxic community. There's no, there's no beyond uh, fan fictions. <laughs> the Poseidon Adventure fan base is, 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 there's a lot of drama. It sounds like. Oh yeah, tons. <laughs> so if you walk in there and you say, you know, I hate Robin, he should have died. Will they kick you out of the group? Um, I wouldn't recommend saying such a thing, but uh, I, I have not tried that. Um, <laughs> feel free. <laughs> that is not a gamble I'm gonna make. <laughs> That's not a, a price you're willing to pay. You don't want to lose your standing in the Poseidon community. Right. Oh yeah. I've got my badges and all sorts of stuff. I, I have a medal around my neck that says I've been a member of there for seven years. And I wear it to New Year's Eve parties. <laughs> all right. I think we have done this movie justice. Again, I, this is a movie that was I was only really introduced to later in my life. And I, it's starting to grow on me to the point that I recently gave the ultimate compliment. I told my wife, I think I might buy this movie on DVD. Whoa. I know. It's more surprising I don't already have it. But again, I didn't even see this until I was like in my 40s. So it's but it, I, I, w I think this is one that I will watch many times because, again, it's right there in that Halloween zone of being really effective and well done, but also goofy as hell, which I love that combination. Absolutely. Did you actually like go to the store and buy it on DVD? I did not because we're in a massive quarantine. <laughs> oh, I heard about that. Yeah, so, so I don't know when you're listening to this podcast. It might be 2021. We might still be in a quarantine. I'm not sure. But I will order on Amazon when the mailing resumes. Okay. Well, there's got to be a morning after. <laughs> there will be. There will be a morning after for all of us. I choose life. <laughs> life matters very much. All right. Well, thank you for being on the show once again. And as always, thank you for being a winner, not a quitter. Thank you so much, Mario. It's been a lot of fun. All right. Once again, this is Mario Lanza. This is Staff Picks. If you need to reach me, you can reach me at staffpickspodcast at gmail.com or on Twitter at Mario J. Lanza. Until the next time, I'll be out there looking for more movies that deserve more love, and I'll try to find something obscure from the 80s that even young Ryan will know about because he was raised with an awesome dork father. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, I'll talk to you guys later next time. Thanks for listening. Goodbye. I told everyone I was going to keep everybody out of here, and goddammit, I'm going to do it!